Today on Summit Life with J.D. Greer. When your justification is based on how well you do, you are always in competition with everybody else because how good you see yourself is determined by how you compare to others. And that results in pride and boasting when you feel like you're doing well, and it results in despair and jealousy when you feel like you're not doing well. The essence of pride is competition. Welcome to Summit Life. I'm Elizabeth Andresco. It seems we often like the concept of diversity as long as other people adapt to our customs and styles. But the gospel teaches us a different way. Today, Pastor J.D. Greer teaches that while there is only one way to salvation, God doesn't accept us because of anything about us, but because of what he's done for us. This makes Christianity, as Tim Keller says, the most inclusive exclusivity there is. Let's jump right in. got your Bible this weekend, Romans chapter three, Romans chapter three, verse 27, uh, Romans three twenty-seven. Uh, if you want to open your Bible there, recently my family and I were at Universal Studios in Orlando, Florida. I had to speak down in Orlando at something. And so while we were there, we decided to make it a family trip and take in a couple of the, of the amusement parks. Well, if you've ever been to Universal Studios, you know that one of the main attractions there is Harry Potter World. And regardless of what you think about, about that whole saga, I know some of you have some reservations and I'm not trying to get into that here this morning. You know, not trying to wade into those waters, but regardless, um, it is one of the most elaborately built, amazing sections of any amusement park that I've ever been to. The creativity and the construction that went into it are staggering. But here's the thing, if you've ever been to Universal Studios, you probably know this, the entrance to that part of the park is at the very back of the park and it's almost completely unmarked. And that is intentional. It's supposed to recreate how you get into the, you know, the so-called magical world in the book. So when you're in Universal Studios, you basically, at the back of the park, you walk through this open doorway in a wall that looks like you're going into a public restroom, but instead it opens up into this amazing and complex world of imagination. I told my wife that if you did not know that that part of the park was there, it's very likely that you could walk right by it and miss the most elaborate thing at Universal Studios. Well, I share that because that is a little bit about how I feel about Romans chapter three, verses 27 through 31. I'll be honest with you, I almost skipped it in the teaching of the book of Romans here because on the surface, when you read it, it looks kind of inconsequential. After explaining in some of the most beautiful, majestic theological language, how we come to Christ and why that's distinct from every other religion of the world, Paul then just starts to, starts to, starts to ramble on a little bit about the law. At least that's what it seems. Romans 3 verse 27. Where then is boasting? He said, it's excluded. By what kind of law? By one of works? No, on the contrary, by a law of faith. For we conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, he's the God of the Gentiles too. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith. Verse 31, do we then nullify the law through faith? Absolutely not. On the contrary, we uphold the law. It almost seemed to me like Paul was rambling on a little bit about the law after he's finished making his point. It's like, Paul, man, land the plane. Okay, you, you, you made it, you stuck the landing. Now just wrap the chapter up. 
up. But the more I have learned about the book of Romans, the more I see that these verses address what is Paul's primary purpose, or one of Paul's primary purposes in the book of Romans, and they are absolutely crucial. Remember I told you this the first weekend in the introduction, the book of Romans is not just a treatise on the gospel. It is that. It's the most detailed treatise we have in the Bible on the gospel, but it is also very practical counsel that he's being given to the church in Rome about a real live problem they were having. And that problem was that Jews and Gentiles were not getting along in the church. You remember this during the introduction, I told you that Romans was written right after Jews had returned back to the church in Rome after having been gone for five years. The Jewish people had been gone because five years prior to the writing of the book, Emperor Claudius had banished all Jews from Rome, which would have included Jewish Christians as well. By the way, you can find that story in Acts 18, one and two, it describes that. Well, after being gone for five years, the Jews are allowed to come back in. Here was the thing, Jews and Gentiles, we know had all these cultural differences. They had stylistic differences, political differences and so forth. Prior to this, prior to this ban, the Jews had been basically the ones in charge of the church. Right, they were the first Christians, which means they had established the church and the Gentiles that became Christians were coming into a church that was led by Jews with Jewish customs. After they got banished, of course, the Gentiles took over. So now that the Jews are coming back after being gone five years, they are returning to a church very different than the one they left. The church was now doing Gentile music with Gentile instruments. The pastor was wearing Gentile style. Sometimes he preached in Air Caesars or whatever. And the potlucks they were serving, they were serving Gentile foods. Everything was different. So the culture that used to be in charge wasn't in charge anymore. And so all these racial and cultural tensions are flaring. You can understand that, right? I mean, if you're part of the so-called majority culture here, imagine that Roy Cooper, our governor, just came out and just banished all white people from Raleigh and the Triangle for the next five years. And imagine that we all come back, if you're in the majority culture, to a church where other people, you know, other people that aren't, that, that, that weren't raised like a lot of us, that have different cultures and styles and things, all of a sudden it's, it doesn't feel like, you know, the church we, we left. You can see why there's gonna be a challenge there. So Paul is trying to help unify these these Jews and Gentiles in this church. By the way, by the way, I think it's really important here to note that they did not do the easy thing, which would have been to start a Jewish campus and a Gentile campus, right? Or to start a Jewish church down the road and a Gentile church on opposite sides of the town. That would have been much easier, but they did not do that. And that's because Jesus's vision of the church was Jew and Gentile in one united body which is why I would say that multi-ethnicity is so important to our church as well. We know that we need to reflect the diversity of our community and we need to also proclaim the diversity of God's kingdom. And if I could just be really, really candid here with you for a minute, some of our brothers and sisters of color here in this church have told me, they're like, you know what? You guys in the majority culture, you like the concept of diversity as long as you're the ones who remain in charge and everything is stylistically the way that you like it. I've told you that many of us, many of us think we want a multi-ethnic church when what we really want is a multi-colored church with everybody of different colors acting like they all like our customs and styles. That makes for a really good photo op. It makes for a good picture on the website, but it is not actually kingdom diversity. That is why Summit Church, we try to share leadership here at the church and be open to doing things a little differently than some of us may have grown up used to, right? That, that's what we are trying to do here. I've told you the definition of a multi-ethnic church is that at some point you feel uncomfortable. If you're not ever feeling uncomfortable, including if you're the pastor, 
Um, if you're not ever doing that, it just means that you've made everybody conform to you and, that, and, and that's not the vision of it. So Paul is writing into this context to try to say, hey, there is a way to get beyond these things to have more in Christ than you have dividing you, whether it's culturally or politically or whatever. Paul says the answer to this relational breakdown is the gospel. And he writes the longest treatise on the gospel to address a relational problem, which is in itself a lesson to you. Paul didn't write five ways to get along. What he wrote was, here's the gospel. He says, this is ultimately a gospel issue. Relational problems go back to gospel realities being forgotten. So wherever you're broken, we're gonna put the gospel there. And that's what we're trying to do. Paul says that one of the primary things that is dividing Jew and Gentile believers is specifically, follow me here, is how Jewish people approach the law. Jewish people approach the law with a typical, we've called it a religious mindset. Every religion in the world functions on this premise, except for the gospel. Every religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. If I obey well enough and often enough and do enough good things and pass God's standard, then I will be accepted by God. That's the, what the Jewish people, many of the Jewish Christians even, had continued to assume that their justification, their being made right with God was found in the excellence of their law keeping. It is that premise, Paul says, that fuels this division. Now you're like, well, okay, how, how's that? Well, see, when your justification is based on how well you do, you are always in competition with everybody else because how good you see yourself is determined by how you compare to others. And that results in pride and boasting when you feel like you're doing well, and it results in despair and, and jealousy when you feel like you're not doing well. You see, the essence of pride in any area, whether we're talking sports or religion or academics or parenting or culture or ethnicity, the essence of pride is competition. I love how C.S. Lewis explains it. Look at this. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They are only proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everybody else became equally rich or equally clever or equally good looking, well, there'd be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud. It is the pleasure at being above the rest. Does that make sense? I mean, think of it this way. It doesn't matter to you Duke fans that your team is good, only that you are better than Carolina and vice versa. And to state fans, you don't care what your record is for the season, only that you beat at least one of those teams at least once during the season, right? I mean, we can't just enjoy the fact that we have two of the greatest basketball programs in history right here in the triangle. No, we got to count championships. We got to count which coach has more wins. And obviously we should all just be state fans since Jesus said the last will be first anyway, okay? Right? That's how pride works. Pride sustains itself. It sustains itself by competition. So when you think of it in religious terms, you're, you're always asking yourself subtly, am I better than this person? Am I, where am I on the scale of, of good people? Or you might think of it in another sphere, like am I as good of a mother as so-and-so? And like I said, when you feel like you're doing well, comparatively speaking, that leads you to boasting, 
which very quickly turns into judgmentalism and then even disdain. When you don't compare favorably to others, that leads to an inferiority complex or despair, which very quickly turns into jealousy and hatred. You end up developing a real sensitivity to criticism. That's your first sign that this is a problem for you. You're really sensitive to criticism. Criticism really bothers you because your identity is built on being good compared to others. And when people challenge your sense of goodness by criticizing you, well, they challenge you at your very core. They're challenging your identity. So you get really, really prickly when criticized. Either their criticism devastates you and you go into a tailspin of despair or in self-defense, you start you know, criticizing them back or coming up with a list of reasons why you're actually better than they are anyway. The reason you're doing that is because your justification has been attacked. Your justification, what sets you apart, what makes you good, so you gotta defend yourself. Or maybe you just kind of silently resent whomever you feel like makes you look bad. That guy at work gets that promotion that you thought that you deserved, right? And so in your, 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 you're kind of jealous of him and in your heart you say things like, well, I'm a better dad than him. I'll be honest with you, I used to think this kind of stuff about other pastors I was jealous of, just to be totally frank with you. Man, you know, if I, if I heard somebody that I thought was a lot better preacher than me or, or they had a, you know, a lot more successful church, I, I'd be like, yeah, but I'm better at X, Y, and Z than they are. And that makes me all around better than them. And that's because my justification came from how good I thought I was in my profession. Or maybe for you, it's that other mother that puts up her perfect little pic on, that, on Facebook of her perfect little kids and her perfect little outfits with her perfect little bows and uh, you know, her perfect little brownies in front of her perfect little HGTV worthy kitchen. You think, I just hate her. You know, and, and you think, I bet you she's having marital problems. I hope she's having marital problems, <laughs> right? But by the way, don't act like I'm not describing what goes on in your heart. I've been honest with you about what goes on in my heart. I know it's what goes on in your heart. That's just the way that we work. That all comes from having an identity that is built on goodness, on being set apart, on justification that comes from being good, from law keeping. It even makes us end up really living in denial about our flaws, which makes us really hard to get along with because we can't even admit our flaws to ourselves because that would undermine our sense of goodness. You might give us some throwaway comments about we're all sinners or, or you might you know, make fun of yourself in some areas, but when it really comes down to self-criticism, you just don't do that because you gotta maintain that sense of goodness to feel justified. You see why Paul pinpoints this as a major source of division? So after explaining the gospel in detail to them in chapter three, that is that our justification doesn't come from how good we are at anything because we're not really good at anything. It's given to us freely as a gift in Christ Jesus. Paul then says, verse 27, so where exactly is boasting then? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Do we stop boasting because God says, thou shalt not boast? Do we stop judging because he says, thou shalt not judge? No, it's not one of works. On the contrary, our boasting ceases by the logic of faith. The gospel eliminates boasting by undercutting the very basis of pride. I mean, hey, you weren't saved by anything you did. You weren't saved by keeping the law. You couldn't keep the law. You were a miserable failure. There was none righteous, not even one, no one who even sought God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In fact, Paul explains, you were so bad. You were so bad that Jesus had to die to save your sorry soul. And that destroys the basis of pride. You know what we sing about here in the church? When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt, disdain on all my pride. Or Paul says, is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yeah, he's the God of the Gentiles too. There's only one God. He justifies the circumcised, that means the religious people by faith and the uncircumcised, the irreligious people, he justifies them by faith just as well. Because ultimately when you peel back the layers of their religion, they got the same sinful heart. That means they need to be saved the same way. 
So why do you think of yourself in different categories? There's only one kind of person, sinner. All have sinned. All, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, black, white, religious, irreligious, all of them. There's just one kind of sinner. All of them have fallen short of the glory of God. And there's only one way of salvation, verse 29, one God who justifies both the religious and the irreligious in exactly the same ways. That means the gospel, Paul says, that means the gospel should be creating a new humanity that really ought to overcome the divisions that result from boasting that comes from you distinguishing yourselves in different categories and trying to show why you're set apart in some way. It's a new inclusive humanity that overcomes any divisions that resulted from boasting. Now, you're listening to me and you're like, wait a minute, Pastor JD, only one God, only one way of salvation? That doesn't sound inclusive to me. That sounds like the epitome of exclusive. Well, that's a really good point, all right? But listen, if you're, especially if you're new to, to Christianity or new to the church, hang with me here for just a minute, okay? You gotta understand, I get why you think that would be exclusive, but you gotta understand first that all religious claims are ultimately exclusive. For example, hang with me. If you say all good people of every religion go to heaven, well, that sounds like super inclusive, right? I mean, hashtag coexist. All right, well then, if you say that, all good people of every religion go to heaven, who have you just excluded? Bad people. And I guess you're the one who gets to define what is bad. And I suppose racists and rapists and child molesters will be on that list. And if you tend to lean more conservative, I'm supposing you would put certain kinds of of sexual immorality on the list of what makes somebody bad. And if you're on the more liberal side, you would probably put anybody who judges somebody else for some kind of sexual immorality, you would put that on the bad list. But the point is you all have a list and some people are on it and others aren't. Now I know you're like, well, well, no, 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 no. I'm not religious at all. I don't exclude anybody for any reason. I would say that's not true. You still have a standard as to what constitutes a good person. I used to live right outside of, of Chapel Hill. Now that's a hashtag coexist place if there ever was one, right? You try driving a truck with oversized tires and an NRA sticker on the back windshield and another sticker telling people you think global warming is a hoax and that's why you refuse to recycle. And I bet you will experience some non-acceptance from some of the people there. That's not what I did, by the way. That's not what I, but I'm just saying the point is their definition of what is good and bad is just as exclusive in Chapel Hill as any other fundamentalist community in the world. All religious and all moral viewpoints end up being exclusive. Everybody's got a line for who was in and who was out. But the gospel of Jesus, you see, is a different kind of exclusivity because the gospel teaches us that our acceptance with God is not based on anything about us. We're not accepted by God because of our higher morality. We're not accepted because of our education or our marital status or our race or our political viewpoint. No, God extends salvation to us as a gift to all who will admit that they are unworthy to receive it and repent and receive it in humility and faith. In fact, you might say it this way, all religions are exclusive, Tim Keller says. All religions are exclusive, but Christianity is the most inclusive exclusivity that there is. What made the gospel scandalous in the first century was not who it excluded. What made the gospel scandalous was whom it included. According to the Talmud, which was a a set of Jewish traditions that tell us about the history in the first century. According to the Talmud, every Jewish man, as part of his morning quiet time, would pray this prayer. He would say, God, thank you that I am not a woman, I'm not a slave, and I'm not a Gentile. Because in their kind of hierarchy, you know, being a Jewish man was the highest in in the hierarchy. 
All right, so I've told you, it is not coincidental that when Paul goes to Philippi, a, he's a Jewish rabbi, he goes to a Gentile city and he starts preaching the gospel. The first three people to get saved, first three people to come to Christ is a woman, Lydia, a slave girl, and then a Gentile. So the first four members of the church in Philippi were a Jewish man, a woman, a slave, and a Gentile. That is not accidental. God is saying, I'm turning everything on its head. I'm showing you there's really no distinction that all people are saved in the same way and that this is the most inclusive exclusivity that there ever has been. The gospel overturns all bases for boasting, all bases for division. Like Paul says, it's excluded, not because God gave us a law, don't discriminate. He just undermined any of the things that would have caused discrimination in the first place. Now, by the way, in case it's still unclear to you, Please don't think of justification. Don't think of this just in terms of religion because all people, secular and religious alike, are seeking justification. Uh, In fact, this is the driving impulse that you have in life, whether you realize it or not. Uh, Many people will turn to religion. They think that their religion makes them good and acceptable, but other people will turn to other things. In our secular culture, many people, for example, turn to excellence in their job. And so if they're really good at what they do, that gives them a purpose for living. That makes them good. It gives them a sense of worth. It makes them put their head up high. I read this article um, a few weeks ago about Sidney Pollack. If you don't recognize that name, he was one, a very famous movie maker, has produced a lot of the movies that are probably your favorites. He died in 2008. Right before he died, he was very sick, very weak. And that's when this article came out because it explained that even though he was on the verge of death, even though he was very weary, he refused to stop working. Even when his family was pleading with him to slow down because they could see it was driving him to an early grave, he said, and I quote, he said, I know, I know, I know that it's, it's driving me to my grave and it's a grueling process process, but I can't justify my existence if I stop. Every time I finish another movie, I feel like I have earned my stay for another year or so. That's what many people in the the, the so-called secular sphere do. It's like, I got to earn my stay by being good at what I do. That is a secular quest for righteousness. Many people try to find it, for example, in their parenting. I read another article about a writer whose career was not going anywhere. I mean, nobody was reading his work and the papers weren't calling him, getting him to write articles. And he, he, he said, I started to question my whole purpose in life. But then he says, get this. Then I looked at my two little girls and I know that my existence is justified. In other words, being a good dad to those two little girls justified his existence. I would say a lot of parents are like that. Their existence is justified by being a good enough parent that enables their children to be successful. But here's the thing. If your children are your justification, you're gonna end up putting way too much pressure on them because you need them to succeed for you to feel validated. If they don't succeed, then you feel like a failure. And that's why if they do poorly or they get in trouble or they compare unfavorably to the kids of your friends, you take it as a deep personal blow to your identity. In fact, it probably even slips out in the kind of things you say to your kids. If you don't do this, then I'm gonna look bad as a parent. I am a failure as a parent if this is what you end up doing. Your passion for their success is not really about them at all. It's about you. It's selfish because your success, your validation is determined by their success. You need them to succeed so you feel justified. We're always trying to find something that tells us we're okay. Something that is our righteousness, something that is our clothing, something that sets us apart, something that makes us acceptable. That is our justification. listening to Summit Life with pastor and author J.D. Greer. J.D., we've now been going through Romans for about three weeks. 
we have one week left before we take a little break. Can you help us take a step back and get a little perspective on what to expect from this series? You know, in this series, this honestly has been one that I have been scared to do for 15 years as a pastor, because I knew that whenever I did it, I'd probably look back and regret it. I'm not saying that necessarily has changed now, but Romans really is the crown jewel of the New Testament. Mm -hmm. It really does, from start to finish, lay out our understanding of, of not only what the gospel is, but but who God is and what he's doing in the world. Right. Martin Luther said, it is impossible to read or meditate on this letter too much. And I, I definitely agree. Mm. One of the biggest ways that we, we wanna do that is through a brand new Romans Bible study, which we'll be given in three parts. It's gonna come in this really like box case that I think is gonna look great on, on, on a shelf. And because of the importance of the book of Romans in our understanding of Christianity and in the Bible itself, it's something that not only will you want to experience these messages, I think you know, having it there to remind you of the depth of the gospel in Romans and give you something even to talk about with other people, I think will be, will be great. Thanks, Janine. That's really helpful. We would love to get you a copy of this new study today, and it comes with our thanks when you donate to support this program. Summit Life is kept on the radio and online by listeners like you. So when you tune in, you've got another listener to thank for the message. And you can extend that gift to someone else by doing your part to keep this program going. Give today and remember to ask for your copy of the first part of our Romans Bible study in the accompanying display box for the set. Call 866-335-5220. That's 866-335-5220. Or you can donate and request the curriculum online at jdgreer.com. I'm Elizabeth Andresco. Be sure to join us again when we continue our series through Romans Friday on Summit Life with J.D. Greer. Today's program was produced and sponsored by J.D. Greer Ministries.